0: If you're in this for money, you're doing it for the wrong reason. I'll say that straight up. And I will argue all day long about that because I was chasing the money before. And that's how, what put me on the couch. I was motivated by money and not to service to the clients, not to service to my teammates and not to service to my community.
1: That's Greg Ward, managing partner of
0: Ward Law Group. And it's so easy as lawyers when we get into the law, because we think it's going to provide us with a great income. But if we begin to chase that money, man, that, that is a terrible way. You're going to, you're going to end up on a couch because- You know, the Bible says money has wings, right? It does, it'll go away. Money has to be just the result for great service and to going above and beyond.
1: I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Greg Ward to discuss how to remain resilient in trying times, why leaders should measure success in terms of impact instead of revenue, and why the best attorneys understand and can empathize with their clients' struggles.
0: You've gotta know what a client is going through. When somebody's been hurt in a car wreck, that their life is in absolute chaos, and they're really sometimes dealing with the most tragic thing that they've had to deal with. And with our clients especially, they're Spanish speakers, some of them are undocumented. They're still a very vulnerable group. And so they need somebody who stands up for them in a big way, but who can also understand their struggle because for them, every dollar
1: matters. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Greg Ward is the managing partner of Ward Law Group, an eight figure personal injury firm in Miami, Florida that has doubled both in revenue and headcount every year over the past several years. While there's no arguing that Greg is incredibly successful, his journey to get to where he is today is one of hardship and adversity. We began our conversation with the first of Greg's many battles against bullies. You know, to
0: understand where I am now, you kind of have to go all the way back to when I was like eight or nine years old. That's the first time I can really remember something impactful happening to me that really charted uh, the course of my life. My parents were a little you know, lower socioeconomic, you know, I, I wouldn't say we were poor, but we definitely were below middle class. And so, you know, I was this little sort of chubby kid. And my sister, my younger sister was uh, also sort of a little chubby kid as well. So I remember one day, we were on the playground across the street from a house and my sister was swinging on a swing. And there was a, a boy there named Harry and Harry was the neighborhood bully. And Harry decided that he wanted to swing side to side on the swings, right? So he starts swinging and he cuts and he, he jumps from one swing to the next swing, the next swing and the next swing. And the next swing has my sister on it. So she's going back and forth. And so Harry tells her to get off the swing. She doesn't get off. And he rams her with a swing and my sister jumps off the swing and they, they start fighting. Now it's my, my little sister. And so I'm there looking at this and I just, I get paralyzed with fear, And the obvious answer is, you know, two against one, my sister and I would have kicked this guy's butt, but I was scared and I got locked up. And so they, you know, wrestle around little kids stuff. And, you know, my sister got some bruises and and so we had to go home. And I remember going in my house and my mother was there. And so I remember her yelling at me at that age and screaming at me like, you know, you stand up for your sister, you stand up for your family. And I remember that fear again, right? That fear just locked me up. And it was just so overwhelming at that moment. And so I couldn't even breathe. And I couldn't even explain to my mom that I was scared. And so as I've relived that moment throughout my life, and I think back to it, you know, now, you know, my sister later passed away. I'll I'll probably talk about that a little later. But I look back in that moment. That was the first time that I realized that it's my job to stand up for somebody who can't stand up for themselves that's something that I live every day and we bring that into what we do. And so that was like the first story of, you know, standing in the, in the gap for somebody who can't stand up for themselves. And, and it's a very powerful memory that I have.
1: In his past life, Greg encountered a series of setbacks which drove him to change the way he thinks and operates. I asked him how that perfect storm of events led to transformational growth in both his personal life and in his business.
0: You look at your life, you look at the arc of your life, and I think Steve Jobs said this, you can't tell where the points are taking you. You can only tell looking back. And so, you know, what, what happens is, you know, you fast forward a little bit. And what happened is I thought becoming an achiever would overcome those things, right? So I had this weight that I carried with me. And, you know, growing up and sort of a tough, I grew up on this Baltimore City line and it was kind of a rough area. And, you know, my sister had slipped into heroin addiction. And so, you know, it was a tough upbringing, really. Although there were some great points too. I don't want to make it sound like I, you know, it was all terrible, but. But I started wanting to check boxes. I thought, if I could just work hard enough, and if I could just make enough money, that all of the bad things that happened to me in my life, I would be able to outwork that. And so I went to law school and I did really, really well. I graduated sort of top of my class. I got the award for most outstanding graduate. I was a commencement speaker at University of Baltimore. And then I went to work for a big white shoe law firm here in Miami. And uh, even in that law firm, you know, when you know, it's funny how you know you deal with bullies in life. And you know, then I was working for the defense side, and there were some people there really brilliant people, but they were still bullies in that environment. And so, you know, uh, but I was checking boxes. I had the white shoe job. I had a kid. uh, You know, I got married, which brings me to the story that you're talking about. When you're chasing the wrong things for the wrong reason, or you're just trying to check boxes and you don't really understand, you know, what your purpose is and who you really serve, then you can get a whole lot together in your life, but really not have anything. It can go away like that. And so, which is what you were talking about. So, you know, you fast forward to, I was uh, probably late my late thirties and I had left that big firm and I had decided to start my own firm because, you know, I learned lessons there too, saying, you know what, I, you know, I can do this. I, I had some sales experience and, you know, lawyers don't really know how to get clients. So I'm going to try my hat at it. And so, and I brought in some business partners. i had started the firm myself and we'd built it up over some years. And, and then, you know, it was really a, a, a tough, tough situation where as I said, my sister had had a heroin addiction, and she was uh, 34 at this point, And she was diagnosed with, uh, with leukemia, which ultimately took her life. And then a year after that, my father was diagnosed with terminal leukemia as well. And he died a year later after that. And you talk about a perfect storm. My ex-wife moved to Greece to carry, take care of her father, who had had a stroke, and took my two-year-old daughter with her you know, all of this bad stuff was happening and I get divorced. My business is falling apart. And so I ended up, you know, sleeping on a couch basically. And thank God I got my daughter back from my ex-wife in Greece and, and I was able to live with her and I could only afford a bed for her, right? She was, she was upstairs and sleeping in the bed. And I, I slept on this Ikea fold-out couch for like a year. And I had, I had my suits, I kept my suits and I had my car and I had a little fold-out table to eat on in the dining room with. And I uh, still had my firm, but it was, it just it hit the rocks. And so that's really where there was a, a strong stepping off point at that moment where, where my life changed because I could have just stayed on the couch. I mean, if outside in the world, I had everything, right? You check all the boxes, you look inside my apartment, it's a total disaster. And so there was a real stepping
1: off point there that was just a powerful transformation that I went through. And with that, I mean, you can't leave us hanging. Tell us about the transformation. Like, yeah, you built this up, like what, what happened next?
0: So, I wouldn't be uh, genuine here if I didn't talk about my wife at this point. My wife is a beautiful, beautiful woman. She's really remarkable on television. She's really photogenic, super sweet. and uh, and people, it's funny because she's an immigrant, and her story is, you know, she crossed the border at fourteen with just a backpack and her little brother with her, her one year old brother. And so she got a scholarship through and worked really, really hard. I think her story is harder than mine because her father and stepfather walked out on them and really just tough story, but she learned who she was. So we started dating, but she was was a, a church girl and she went to this church. She had a strong faith. And I said to her, I said, I want to go to your church. And she said, I'm not going to take you to my church until I know it's serious. I said, you know, take me to church. And she took me to church. And that first time I went to church, I had a really powerful spiritual encounter with what I have to describe as God. And I really felt him touch me. And so, you know, as a, as a, as a non-denominational evangelical Christian, I, I, I did what we call an altar call. I went up and professed that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And I can honestly and sincerely tell you that everything that really started going for me in my life started from that moment. And so it was a really powerful transformation. But I had to clean out a lot of bad stuff at that point. But that really was a stepping off point. Because at that moment, I was really able to engage with my faith and really understand that God has a plan for all of us. And no matter what we go through, it is for our development.
1: You and I—this is something we both have in common—in the sense that we both married up, and we wouldn't be where we are today without our wives. Your wife, Hani, she plays a very instrumental role in, in the growth of your business as well, and the firm as a whole. Um, if you could speak more to her, and also just in terms of how you two work together, and then ultimately have, how you've really grown the firm into what it is
0: today. Sure. So to understand, to understand my wife, you know, you have to understand her story, which I had started touching on. You know, my wife, she's a Cuban refugee. She came here when she was 14 with her mother and her little brother. And so when she came to the United States, you know, she crossed the border, she was put in a foster home as many immigrants are, are treated now. Um, she was separated from her mom who was put in jail. And at this point, her mother was with her stepfather. And they were put in a bus and you know, she basically had nothing. Her little gold necklace, the only thing that she had in her life was stolen from her in the foster home. And so when she got to Miami, her mom had to struggle with working in a mattress factory, working two or three jobs and she was she went to work in the flea market selling you know mangoes and fruit and things like that you know at 14 and so she really learned to struggle. And so one of the things about my wife that is really so amazing, she's an inspiration to me, she truly is. She's able to connect with our clients as am I that we understand their struggle. Right? You've got to know what a client is going through when somebody's been hurt in a car wreck that their life is in absolute chaos. And they're really sometimes dealing with the most tragic thing that they've had to deal with. And with our clients especially, they're Spanish speakers. Some of them are undocumented, but not all of them. But but they're still a very vulnerable group. And so they need somebody who stands up for them in a big way, but who can also understand their struggle. Because for them, every dollar matters. This isn't something like, you know, you or I, we go out and spend $100 for dinner. It's not that big of a deal. Or maybe I have a nice bottle of wine. But for my clients in particular, a dollar matters. So my wife reminds me every day of this commitment we have to our clients and service to our clients. It's very real for us because it could have been us. You know, she tells a story, she was uh, she was in law school and she wanted to get a Diet Coke and the guy at the gas station, she had like she was short like literally one penny and the guy wouldn't sell her the Diet Coke. I mean, if you can believe this, like these stories are unbelievable but when you're when you're poor it happens to you. And the guy was such a such a jerk and she was walking around the parking lot looking for that for that penny to get that Diet Coke. And so she knows that penny makes a difference to her. For me, it's a dollar, right? For her, it's a penny. And so really that that's real to us. We feel it every day. And so we hope to impart the help that we can to our clients in that place where we know it matters. And we're blessed to really not worry about a penny now, thankfully, but we understand that struggle. And that's really key to our success so far.
1: And for anybody who's listening that's considered working with their spouse, maybe working with their spouse, any anything you've learned in terms of how to make it work?
0: you know, it's funny you say that In the brand video, you know, we won an award today. I, I want to thank you for that. I'll give you the public shout out. i I have the award right here. You can't see it if you're a listener, but I got this golden gavel for the best uh, brand video this year. Thanks to Chris for putting that together for us. And I, w- I was watching the video again during the award ceremony and I saw it. And you know, I, one of the lines I said was, you know, people say, how can you work with your wife? And my response is always the same. How can you not work with your wife? because if you think about how difficult this is, practice of law or even just life. I don't care if you're a lawyer or anything in life. We all have struggle, we all have difficulties, we all have obstacles and if you don't have that perfect relationship, and man, I don't tell me my relationship's not perfect, right? But if you don't have that perfect bond where you can trust your wife and really be on the same page with everything, then you honestly you should work on your marriage before you do anything else. And so we work together it's such a beautiful thing that what we have. I really do feel God has fashioned her for me. For me, I do the the structures and you know the procedures and and I you know I have my trial experience, which was which was great. But she's perfect for the marketing, and she really relates to people in a way that I can't relate to. So we just have this great great combination.
1: And I know now you and Hani have achieved massive success in growing the firm, but I'd love to hear about some of the early days of Ward Law Group, if you can speak to that.
0: Yeah. So. I was uh, finishing up leaving the other firm that I had, you know, had had left, and so um, I negotiated some things and was able to get my business started. And so we started together. And I was doing a billable commercial litigation, really like first party insurance practice, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. It's, it's, but it's a billable case. I wasn't doing contingency fee, so I had some, or at least one really big client that I took with me. I was there one day in my little office. I sublet an office for some friends. I was in downtown Miami, so it was a pretty nice office, but I was in a sublet situation. And I got an email from this client. And this client, we'd hired two secretaries to help us because this client was really—it had a big case—and so they were paying us at least half our revenue a month, maybe more. And the client just discharges me with no warning, and I'm like, "What happened? I've never been fired, right?" Like, I—this was a—this was a blow. So we get this email in, my wife, who is a woman of faith, I tell her this, and she starts crying, right? She's she's terrified. She says, what are we going to do? And so fortunately, I was on fire with faith at that point, and I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to sow a seed. We're going to give a special offering to our church because I'm not going to let any fear control our finances. I'm not going to let my fear control the situation. And so that's what we're going to do, and God's going to fix this. And so that weekend, we went... And I'm going to tell you the amounts because it's really, I think it's important to the story. The other weekend, we gave $1,000. $1,000 was a lot of money for me at that point, right? It was like, it hurt to give this seed. And we were also tithing at that point, but we weren't making any money. So there was nothing to tithe on. But I said, I'm going to give this $1,000 seed. And so the next week, I get an order in from a judge. We got in summary judgment on this insurance coverage case, which in Florida, you know, if you win an insurance coverage case, you get your fees paid. And so the next Day, I got a call from defense counsel who said, "Hey, we want to settle this case now. The only thing that's in dispute, we're going to pay the whole claim. The only thing that's in dispute is your fee." And so my wife, I go to my wife. I say, "Okay, well, let me call you back." I hang up the phone. <laughs> I go talk to my wife. I said, "Baby, what should we do?" And she says, "Oh, you know, she should ask for—I don't forget—it was eighty or ninety thousand, whatever it was, because it had been a case going on for three years. I had a lot of fees." And I remember this movie, the the rundown with the rock. And I said, no, I'm going to ask for 110000 No, she said 100000 So I'm going to ask for 110000 because they jerked me around so much for these last three years. They flew me all over the state, dozens of depositions, unnecessary. And so I go in and I pick up the phone and I call the defense counsel and I say, listen, I'm going to give you option A or option B. Option A is you give me $110,000 now. Option B is I go to court and I seek $200,000 because you guys jerked me around so much. You decide. And the week later, I had a check for $110,000 in fees. Praise God. And I tell that story for a couple of reasons, right? Number one is, I mean, you know the powerful lesson. You cannot let fear drive you. And so many people right now are locked up, especially with COVID. So many people are locked up in fear. But it could be COVID. It could be a client. It could be defense counsel. It could be any number of things that are driving your fear bus. But the point is, is don't lose hope. Right? There's if you take an action, and I, we took an action and we sowed the seed, and that and showed you know, our heart for giving. And God redeemed us. And so, the epilogue of that story, the great finishing part was that first $110,000, we used that check and wrote our first advertising contract for radio. And the first case we got, we made back that advertising contract. And so, we, and of course, then we started tithing on that and doing other things and sowing. And, and then we grew and grew and grew and grew. From that point. So but that was a real stepping off point in a place of fear. We decided to move forward and just say, you know what, we're not gonna we're not gonna let that happen. And the other epilogue, the epilogue, is that every business we now have as a side business is called Hundredfold. You know, in the Bible they talk about you can get 30, 60, or hundredfold fold return, and this is real for spreading the gospel. But so hundredfold for me, we bought a building, as you know, and, and you have your building, and I salute you for that. Our building is called the Hundredfold Business Center. Because really, all of this is, is, is our blessings that we're able to share. And we got a big sign, is illuminated 100 full business center. And so I'm grateful for that. That it's, you know, it's just great to see those. We're just repeating that message over and over again to, to don't lose hope. And a place of fear is an opportunity to move forward and really try something amazing. And when you do, there's really not a lot of competition because most people are afraid. So, you know, it's, it's been really a blessing for us.
1: And I know you shared with me numerous times that you attribute all of your success to the level of impact that you make and that really money is just a byproduct. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, I believe that money is just the result, right? If you're in this for money, you're doing it for the wrong reason. I'll say that straight up. And I will argue all day long about that because I was chasing the money before and that's how, what put me on the couch, right? I was motivated by money and not to service to the clients, not to service to my teammates and not to service to my community. And it's so easy as lawyers when we get into the law because we think it's going to provide us with a great income. But if we begin to chase that money, man, that, that is a terrible way. You're going you're gonna to end up on a couch because the Bible says money has wings, right? It does. It'll go away. And so money has to be just the result for great service and, and going above and beyond. So I believe that wholeheartedly. Money is the payment and the compensation you receive for service provided You have to do something. You know, I I see this with kids today. Now millennials, I say kids, I mean, I'm almost 50. I mean, they're not so many kids, but God bless them. I, I think they have an opportunity to change the world. And you know, their hearts are good hearts. Just sometimes they get a little misguided. You know, these folks get, you know, everyone wants to be their own businessman. Everyone wants to have their own business. And they want that for the financial independence and freedom, really just freedom. The problem is, is that, you know, your business is never about you. Your business is about who you serve. And so, you know, you can't go out there, you know, I, I didn't like being at the big law firm after a while, but I didn't leave there because I didn't like it. I left there because I outgrew it. I wasn't somebody who was going to be rebellious and be like, screw you, I can do it better. Right? I say that now because I do do it better. But but that's not the message, right? The message is I hung in there, I toiled away, I learned the lessons I had to learn. And then I went out and said, you know what, I can do it better. I can serve the clients better. I can serve other people who I want to serve more. And so then really, you know, that had that impact. So, Honestly, truly, you know, and I see some lawyers, and, and God bless them. I, I'm not trying to say anything bad about them. But when you're tracking your results purely by your income, that's a wrong way to do it. Maybe settlements. I'm fine. With you saying, you know what? I settled a billion dollars worth of cases. We're not there yet. We'll be there in a couple of years. But billion dollars worth of cases—that's a billion dollars of cases you settle for real people with real cases. Bless you, right? But if you're saying I made you know 25 million dollars last year, and it's just about you, forget it. You're gonna lose it eventually. I promise you. It's gonna come time. And you're not going to have the wherewithal you need to make the next step because you just you've got your priorities messed up. So, you know, and that's why giving, by the way, is also important because it keeps the money at a distance. The money is not the objective; it's just the service. And then you will you will naturally recover, or receive the blessings from the service you provide. That's a non-negotiable. That's fundamental. Like if you want to do this for money, do something else because
1: there's never enough money for that. Greg is clearly someone who lives and leads in alignment with a certain set of principles. I asked him to elaborate on the values his practice is built upon and how they dictate the way he runs his law firm.
0: So when I'm sleeping on the couch, right, there's no better way to get in touch with who you are as a person, right? And a lot of this is, you know, who am I? And so in that time when I'm sleeping on the couch, I get a little emotional talking about this because it was a painful time, but- so when I was sleeping on the couch, you know, it's like, who are you? You know, what do you want to do with your life? When you're on the couch, man, you, everything's up, right? <laughs> you know, you're laying on the couch, you're looking up, you got, everything's up because you're at the bottom. I mean, thank God I wasn't homeless, I guess, but for me, that was the bottom. And so you have an opportunity to really discover who you are. And at that time, you know, we really went on a, or I went on a quest to figure out who I was. And so I looked back and thought about my core values of who I am and what my vision is. And I do feel like when I was a kid, like God had always kept his hand on me. And I also feel like God had something big for me. I didn't know what. And so I really started trying to build a dream at that point where nowhere to go but up. And so I came up with several core values. The ones that we put out there are, you know, our first value is is customer service, service to the clients. Second is service to our teammates, service to our community. And then we have faith. Obviously, I talked about faith 20 times here, (laughs) accountability, accountability leadership and loyalty. Those are our seven core values. Those are the things that if you ask any of our people, hopefully they'll know all seven of them. We talk about them all every week in our, in our huddle, we do one or two, but ser- most importantly, service to our clients. We've got to remember that all of this is about our clients. And secondly, all of it's about our teammates, right? We got to help each other. You got to figure that stuff out. You got to figure out your core values. It's such a catchphrase, right? It was like, oh, my core value is, and they give like 20, 20 paragraph explanation what your core value is. It's short, it's simple, like customer service. When I'm in a when I'm in a room and I gotta make a decision about something important, I think, how's it gonna affect my clients? How's it gonna affect my team? How's it gonna affect our community? And if faith or accountability or loyalty or leadership fall into that too, I'll view it. But usually those three at the top, they're the ones that really drive most decisions. How is it gonna affect my clients? You know, if I were to do something that would make my clients have less money but drive my income up, I would not do that. Right, I'm not going to do that. Our client service is first and foremost. You know, we're you know, in a situation with teams. When COVID hit, I didn't lay anybody off. Right, my competitors, a lot of them laid a lot of people off. I didn't. So you know, I have a commitment to you guys. I'm going to keep you here. And that PPP loan, then that was nothing. That was a drop in the bucket at that point because we had a lot of people. And so you know, but we stepped forward in faith and said, you know what, I serve my team. You guys, if I have to make less money, it's fine. You guys, we're going to keep you here and keep you employed. And I also know that selfishly that it's hard to hire good people back after it's over. You know, they're going to be like, I'm not coming back to you, you jerk. <laughs> you know, so we made those commitments. But our, our core values, it's central. Our mission, you know, serve Spanish speakers, serve people who are immigrants first and foremost, and we want to make a big impact. So we really have an aggressive growth strategy and God has blessed us in that in that path.
1: And it seems like just over the years, I mean, the firm is you know, it's growing exponentially, doubling almost every single year, both in revenue, headcount, and so on. Are there any specific decisions that you've made that you, know, you attribute this growth to? My faith first, obviously, right? If you don't have your faith, you don't have what's going on in your guts
0: squared away, forget it. Every day is a struggle on some level. You know, today, like I like it's in the afternoon right now, I'm tired, right? It's just a, and I, But I honor you and have a commitment to you and your organization because you've helped us a lot you know, I could use COVID as an example, right? I hate to say the C word again, but they had a quarantine lockdown. We came up with a legal construction that would allow us to be essential workers. So we could actually go out if we had to, you know, as a time legal requirements in Florida, whatever. But the truth is we had everyone working from home. We did everything by zoom and we were able to just cut that deadline close. And so I'm sitting there, you know, in my pool and I spent a few days drinking. I'll be honest with you. Like, I'm not even kidding you. Like I was these vodka pineapple drink. I just started drinking. Right. It's like, it was overwhelming for all of us. And so I'm sitting there and I was like well, what can we do right now where we're at we have our tv studio which you see behind me and i said you know what all we can do is do what we got right here right now and so or work with what we got right here right now so i brought in a cameraman my wife and i came in the office and i said we're gonna do training videos and so we revamped our training system and so we recorded these long days of recording with one cameraman or two cameramen studio is kind of big you know, with masks on, sound equipment, do all these training videos. And we did something like 27 or maybe 70. I don't remember the total number. We have a video on that. And I said, okay, what else are we going to do? Well, we're going to improve our processes. So we started working on our laptops. What what processes don't we have in place? And then we were in the middle. We, we started going into, we, uh, funny enough, upgraded to uh, case management software in that time too. And so, okay, well, we hired a Salesforce developer to go work at home and work on all the processes with our other people. So we're all doing these crazy like not to use Google's example, but we're all like these remote people who are just doing this like this tech conversion of our firm. And then we're like, you know what? I'm not going to back off on marketing. Because everyone's home watching TV, right? So I kept my advertising contracts going. Now it's kind of stupid. We negotiated reduced rates, but what the heck? Everybody saw us we're blowing up TV, right? We we went on new TV stations, right? Everyone's watching TV, so we're going to hit that. And by the way, it worked because we doubled our market share now. So when the traffic comes back, we have twice the market share of crashes right now, so we'll ride that wave up. And the last thing you know we did in April, we locked down like March 17th, I think. April, first week of April, we close on a 52,000 square foot building, which I had to jam through because the bank was like, no, no, we can't do it, you may die of COVID, blah, blah, blah. And so we really pushed through that hard. And so, you know, just like, while everyone else is retreating, we're expanding. I say, how can we expand in this gap? And it was an exciting time for us, it was also terrifying. But I say, you know what, this is our chance. I have to say, look, my, my territory is opening up. I'm going to expand. I'm going to step forward in faith. And that's what we did. And it seems like everything worked out. I, you know, there's, I'm sure there's some bumps along the road. There always are. But everything that we did during COVID seemed to really has come together now nicely for us. And, and that's, a, that's a great case study. You know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're thinking about it, you can't let that fear in your head, man. Be sensible about it. Don't let that fear in your ear, because once you do, you know you're paralyzed, and there's nothing you can do.
1: Aside from the, you know, from the wins, obviously, you made a lot of very, very good decisions. But looking back over the years, uh, as you grew the practice, what were some of the biggest mistakes you made, and what did you learn from them?
0: Trusting the wrong people. The case that I sewed the thousand dollar seat over was stolen by a mentee of mine, right? So who the person who undercut me in pricing was somebody who I was mentoring. So that was a problem. Finding good people, bringing the right people in your organization—those are probably the biggest mistakes. They hurt my heart, to be honest with you. Like totally transparent, when I lose somebody, if somebody—and you know—I really try and be 100% for them. And if they betray me, and I—you know—I I got haters on social media now. People who used to work here, well, I had to let go because they weren't making their KPIs and their numbers and things like that. They know the commitment, but they—and they miss us. I know they miss our culture, and so they—you know—they trash talk us. They go work for my competitors and try and you know, figure out what my marketing mix is so they can try and take me down in TV stations or take us down in TV stations. So, you know, trusting people, that's always hard, but you have to keep doing it, right? Because I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We've got a team, we've got a hundred beautiful people here. Maybe two or three of them will turn out to be bad apples, but every year we get better at our hiring processes. So with our hiring process, every year we get better and hopefully have fewer and fewer of those people. So the biggest mistakes on trusting people, relying too heavily maybe on vendors sometimes, Trusting vendors too much too right so everybody's going to come in and tell you everything they can do, and then they rarely, rarely match that. Let me give you a shout out, Michael. You guys have delivered everything you promised. I'll be honest with you, like and and you were one of the few vendors. That's why we're still here. That's why I'm sharing this with you. It's very rare in our in our world where people actually deliver what they promise, and you have done it. And you have a great organization, and I appreciate that. I salute you guys for that. So yeah, so those were those were the tough things as far as uh, mistakes you know, we test a lot of stuff. So we don't make a lot of mistakes maybe in marketing because we, we we test stations and things like that. So, you know, but we made mistakes in the past, you know, spending money we shouldn't have spent, you know, like Pandora, for example, like I remember we did Pandora early on, it was like a $5,000 contract, which is huge for us. Didn't get a single case from that. So, you know, that's a mistake, but you learn, right? And that's the whole point of all this is that you learn. If you learned a lesson, you paying for an education.
1: And I want to talk about the hardest part of any business, right? The people, what are some of the things that, that you're doing to attract and, and retain the best people uh, to your organization?
0: I pray a lot. I really do. Like, I'm like, God, please bring me the right people. But other things we do, you know, we, we've used, you know, we use the print analysis, which I think is really excellent. And to be honest with you, you know, this, we put off doing the print testing. We put it off. I was like, ah, we have a good enough process. And so not only do I use print as a, as a hiring tool, but I also use it as a coaching tool now, which you guys had taught us to do, to say, hey- you know this is why people do what they do, and I also notice a real trend. For those of you, I'll share it with you. If you use the print testing, you know our successful people, eights, ones, sixes, threes. Those numbers really are doing really, really well at our firm, for a variety of reasons. Depending on the position that they're in, um, the twos usually are the client facing, so that's really a, a, a blessing for us. So, so we do the print analysis, and we we are intentional where we put people. We may have somebody who come in who's a good candidate, and they think they should be. Uh, an admin person, but there are two. I'm not putting them an admin. I'm putting them client facing. You know, sometimes people don't even know what they want, right? They don't know what their skills are, so we do that. We do some screening. We use some other organizations, do some other testing, and so uh, we we use Spark Hire to do video interviews. I mean, it's really like we have a whole process, and we also use what you guys did, which is we make it hard for people to apply, so they have to call to get the instructions to apply, and they have to follow those instructions. And if they don't, they get demerits. I'm not good enough yet where I can just block somebody if they don't follow my instructions, but they do get a a minus on their, on their list. And, you know, every year we get better and better and better applicants and better people.
1: And let's talk about leadership. Just any key leadership lessons that you learned over the, over the years that you'd wish you'd learned sooner.
0: Be yourself. You know, I was at the, I was at the video awards today that, uh, you know, for the national trial lawyers and, you know, uh, someone, I I, I forget her name. I'm sorry. uh, She had done her, her video. And she's like, you know, you have to be a vulnerable warrior And the truth is so many of us are trying to project this strength, right? We want to be, you know, your aggressive lawyer or your strong lawyer, or we're going to kick butt or we're going to do all this stuff. The truth is to be a good lawyer, you have to have some trauma, right? You've got to be able to understand and relate to your client's stories. And so you've got to be able to understand that trauma and know what they go through. Let me give you a quick example of this. I had a trial, this guy, his name was Oswaldo, and he did a, he was a Venezuelan immigrant and he was a father of two kids. He was riding a scooter and a PI lawyer, ironically, a personal injury lawyer, a very established PI lawyer in Miami had turned out in front of him. And the guy laid his scooter down and ended up having pretty serious neck and back injuries. The PI lawyer had got to the police before my guy, my guy's pretty busted up, so he's not talking to the police. The PI lawyer got and, and cast a story. So the police officer gave my client a ticket and there was no actual collision. My guy swerved out of the way. So he like, and he lays the bike down. So there was, there was no impact, and the police report is written very unfavorably to my client, said he was speeding, whatever it is. So we go into this case, and the insurance company's offer was $100,000. And basically, they're saying, you know, your client doesn't matter. And my client was a difficult client because he was very intense, right? He's calling every day. And we had to go to litigation over this matter, and they hired this very prestigious defense lawyer in Miami who, who's got like a 90% win ratio. So if you stack everything up against us, it's like, you know, we're done here. But I'm like, no, this guy's got kids. He's the sole breadwinner. He was going to school He's at night. He's a night student. And so we did our case. The defendant, the PI lawyer was not particularly good on the stand. You'd think a PI lawyer would be real good on the stand. He was not. He fell apart. We ended up, we tagged it for $2.5 million. It got reduced 50-50 comp comparative default. So we got $1.25 million in the verdict. And the story is, because I do, my client was, he was hurt. And I remember the mediator then. So the insurance company says, let's go to mediation. And so we're just want to figure out how we're going to pay. And long story short they they just hammered us at mediation they're like you're never going to win on appeals the case is all over and the mediator was pounding on me and let me tell you man that's they're like you know i can get you 800 900 i don't know you know how mediators do and a lot of lawyers are listening to this will will know this kind of game and i said no do not call me back unless you have the full amount period and i remember that mediator called me i was on the beach in Cancun on my firm retreat we took all of our employees to Cancun one year and the guy called me on the beach in Cancun I was a little tipsy. <laughs> and he called me and he said, I- I'll get you the full amount. So that was it. And he was able to actually get the next surgery he needed and other things. And so, but I gotta tell you, you gotta have the guts to do that. And you gotta know what that struggle is. And I gotta know what he's going through with his kids and know that he's not gonna be able to provide for his kids. It matters. And as long as he's willing to go forward, I'm willing to go forward. And that was it.
1: you briefly mentioned this, so I'd love to if you could speak more to this, but you're on the beach in Cancun, the firm retreat. Let's let's talk about that.
0: Oh, so we were talking about authenticity, right? So one thing that we do, like it's important for us, you know, we play together, we stay together. So we, every year we do this, we do a firm retreat and we haven't done it last year. This year we're going on a cruise in November, but we'll take everyone who's been here for a year or more, we go on a cruise. And then we do communication workshops and things like that. But the truth is when it get back to the point about authenticity, right? You asked what's the key to being a good leader is authenticity. And authenticity means vulnerability. It means being real, right? I have to share with my people the struggles that I had my wife has to share the struggles that she had so they know we're real people, right? Because they look at us, right, man? Like, think about this, right? You, you drive a nice car. I'm she driving your Rolls Royce or whatever it is you got, right? I don't drive that to the office, but I don't have a Rolls Royce. But you know, it's very easy for them to slip into an us-them mentality, very easy for them to say, you know what? He never had it hard. And so you've got to be authentic, and you've got to be vulnerable, and you got to be real. And so I guess those probably all mean the same thing. But the truth is, is that, you know, that authenticity. And so when we go together to a place, a destination, you know, what we try and do is first is communication. That's the most important thing. It's glue of the organization. you got to be able to communicate. And today, so many people are used to doing the the BlackBerry. Oh no, sorry, gosh, I said BlackBerry. I like, I don't know why I even went there. Like, I'm so dated now, (laughs) right? But, you know, they do the Instagram or the Facebook or whatever. Facebook even dates you, right? And now it's TikTok and Snapchat those are the things. So, you know, we get so dated on that stuff and we get so used to this screen in our faces. And so, you know, we need to get face to face and get real with each other. We bring spouses too. And, uh, and then we teach communication skills. Like one year, what we do, do, every year we do love languages. There's a, there's a book by, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his name right now. The five languages of love. And that's a game changer for relationships, right? When you know what your spouse is, you can communicate on a whole different level. So that's like, so that's we always do that as a communication workshop. And people have told me like we save their marriage. I mean, I don't want to brag, but God save their marriage. But the truth is, is like learning to communicate with one another, how people want to be loved. That's a great way to do it.
1: So the book is uh, uh, Gary Chapman, I believe. Gary
0: Chapman, thank you. Uh,
1: My love language is acts of service. So great book of by the way. Of course
0: Michael. Me too. What is Jessica's love language? What's Jessica's love language?
1: She's uh, gifts, receiving gifts. Really.
0: That's really rare. My wife says words of praise. Mm. So that was a challenge for the first couple of years of our relationship because I didn't know this. And so I'm out there working for her, working really hard, and she was working hard with me. And so that satisfied my love language, but she wasn't getting satisfied. And so you know, that, that's, I commend that to you guys. If you're having any issues in your marriage, read love languages first, The Five Languages of Love by Gary Chapman. I could remember Chapman. I could not remember Gary. Uh, and he's a pastor too, or actually he's a minister. So he wrote it, you know, and I, I've, I taught on that issue in church too, with, with stories from the Bible. And it's really, it's really powerful. Great. And do the work. Don't just skim it. Like actually do the exercises to test what you are. It's amazing. And, and so Jessica's gifts, All right? Well, I'm going to send her a bottle of wine now. So I'll be able to get to that.
1: There you go. So, so Greg, aside from, let's say texting on your Blackberry, how, how are you spending your time these days?
0: So traveling, we're always looking to travel. I'm blessed to be able to travel with my kids. You know, I have a 15-year-old daughter, which I'd mentioned, uh, who was, I guess, two back when bad stuff happened, or two or three and four. She's old enough to remember how bad it was. So, you know, she knows she had the struggle, too. So I'm, I don't, I'm not proud of that. But at the same time, she knows that we have a good life now. So we travel with her. We travel with our. We have two baby twins, Chloe and Kaylee. So everywhere we go, we really try and take our family with us now because I missed that with my oldest daughter. I never want to repeat that mistake. Do a lot of work with our church. Uh, it's, you know, we're, we're really blessed to be able to, to help people. I, I teach people in business. I'm always doing some sort of talk or something like that. Time management is obviously critical too. That's, I mean, we got, we've covered a lot of ground here. My day is literally packed. I'm up at five, maybe 4.30, five o'clock. Uh, you know, I start immediately at five o'clock in the morning. I, you know, I start every day by reading the Bible. Then uh, I work out. And then I look at my calendar for the day. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I take a Spanish class. (laughs) Yo, estudio espanol. I was joking that uh, I was going to do the whole interview in Spanish. And then we get here and just start grinding away, meetings and other things. Uh, We have uh, another point, by the way, just leadership point. Daily huddles, great, great, great idea. We do a management huddle at uh, 9.30 for 15 minutes. And then they go and do their team huddles right after that. Great way to do top-down communication in 30 minutes. Everybody in the organization has heard the same message. So really important, the pulse of an organization, I think is what Vern Harnish said, is it's the pulse. And it really is, the meeting
1: rhythm is the pulse of your organization. So super important. And Greg, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Man, with
0: God, anything is possible. That's what game changing means. But you know, your life has a story and you can't always put together what the points of the story are, but they're there. So look in your heart and figure out who you are, find out what, what the key points of your life are and what your values are, and just kill it. Learn from the
1: struggle, you know, build on it, and serve people, man. Love people. I want to give a huge thank you to Greg Ward for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when Greg said that revenue is a byproduct of impact and service, not the other way around. And the best way to measure our success as leaders is through the impact we're able to make for our clients, our teams, and our communities. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Greg Ward, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. And join us next time. And we'll be speaking with the 18,000 mile man, the world record holder for cycling around the world in under 80 days, entrepreneur, investor, and advisor, Mark Beaumont. This is a podcast you will not want to miss. Endurance, ultra endurance, adventure. Anyone could do that. Young, old, male, female. It's more about your life experience, your resilience, your ability to suffer, sleep deprivation, just The overall toolkit, as well as that physicality. And it's not about how good am I today, but how good am I tomorrow, the next day, next week, next month. Just that ruthless consistency to perform. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.